<laughs> okay, give me some words so I can. Hear. I am uh, Janine Durning. Perfect. Okay, then we start. Okay. Six, seven, eight. Hello and welcome to a new episode of 5678, a podcast about dance training. My name is Rebecca Berstold and today's guest is Janine Durning. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm so happy you're here. Um, we are in my kitchen in Stockholm and maybe you could introduce yourself shortly. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so, like I said, my name is Janine Durning. Um, I am from New York. I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, grew up upstate New York, about an hour outside of Manhattan. Although um, I, yeah, my father lived in Manhattan, and so I was down there a lot and sort of grew up um, in the thick of the 80s, you know, in uh, surrounded by a lot of theater and experimental performance. Um, so that's sort of in my DNA. Uh, my father was also an actor, so I kind of grew up in the theater. And also um, later on, he moved out to Los Angeles and he was a film actor. And uh, so I was, you know, on sets a lot. So, so yeah, the uh, notion of performance is sort of in in my blood somehow um uh, yeah so I don't know uh I could say a lot more about uh that or other things about how I got into dance but uh maybe I'll we let you ask the there. question yeah, <laughs> yeah perfect um I just like to say that we met this week because you were teaching classes at Dance Centrum here yeah. in Stockholm yeah um but we will get to that also Okay, soon. great. But first, for some context and get to know your dance background. Yeah. My first question is, how did you start to dance? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the preamble about where I come from and also my, you know, sort of parental influence. My my Both my parents were originally ballroom dance teachers and that's actually how they met. And my father, you know, was a kind of like struggling actor in New York. And so as a sort of supplemental income, he was teaching uh, ballroom dan dance. Um, so in any case, that's the sort of background of them. But dance and performance was, yeah, always in my life. Um, and how I actually formally got into it, I'm not quite sure right now. I mean, I know that I started taking dance classes in upstate New York at this little studio that my mother took me to. And it was in a little town and really dedicated teachers. Um, but I started with uh, tap and jazz. And um, I think that early training or that early influence is really embedded in how I think about rhythm and, you know, how I use time and it's a very particular way of working time than say if I had started out with ballet. So, and I started relatively late, all things considered for uh, girl dancers, um, especially at that time. Uh, um, uh, so I was maybe 11, 10 or 11. Um, and then, um, yeah, uh, sort of mysterious to me at this stage how I decided to pursue it, mm. or why even. Um, uh, maybe because there, you know, I went to um, university for dance and performance. Um, and I think I, 
uh, actively pursued it because there was also some obstacles. Uh, you know, I had applied for quite a few, you know, uh, prestigious dance training schools like, you know, NYU and Juilliard and Purchase. There, you know, these probably don't have any grounding in your um, lexicon, but they were quite, you know, like the dance schools to go to. And um, I wasn't accepted into any of them. And I think like not being uh, accepted or feeling like this uh, push that I, someone was saying that I couldn't do something made me <laughs> work harder at it and really um, insist somehow. So maybe that's actually what got me into dance as a, as a, as a sort of active field. Mm. And once you entered the university for mm. dance, how, mm. how did you experience that? Um, I'd, I was a workhorse, you know, like I, I uh, was kind of have a temperament or had a temperament that, you know, I always had to work harder than everybody else. And, you know, that I was told that I didn't have uh, a kind of dancers, uh, you know, look or, or body or, um, that I was sort of defying the, um, classical, um, uh, relationship to what we understand as a as a as a dancer dancer's body a lot of uh, politics in that mm -hmm. um, so I think that there was something in that mindset that you know made me push harder and work harder and um, I can't say that I necessarily enjoyed it but maybe what I enjoyed was the the yeah the labor of it and the long hours and being in the studio. Um, yeah, the pro, you know, the process of mm. learning, I think, but I can't say that it was like pleasurable, mm. you know, and maybe that also gets, gets into my particular temperament that, you know, there's a certain amount of pleasure that goes a certain, uh, uh, way, like, you know, it only gets you so far. And then after the pleasure is the actual work. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that I would also say that for myself, yeah. uh, even today. Yeah. I had the teacher in school who said, uh, when you apply for school and your motivation is that you love to dance, that's so great. But it's not going to last through the entire education. And after some time, you're going to be faced with, okay, I don't love it right now. No. How do I do it now? Or no, Do I exactly. want to do it now? Exactly. I had this teacher, one of the first, it's a something that I hold as a, a really strong memory for myself is my first day actually at NYU. Eventually I was um, uh, accepted there, the Tisch School of the Arts, and it was my first day. But previously I had done two years in a conservatory in Boston. Um, in any case, uh, Christine Wright, her name is, uh, she was um, a ballet teacher in the tradition of Maggie Black. It, maybe for those of, you, you know, your people who are listening might, you know, some of them might reference these um, names, but Christine taught an amazing class. I mean, a ballet class for, for contemporary dancers. And um, uh, she was a dancer in the Lar Lubavitch company. Anyway, amazing dancer, um, incredible teacher. First day, <laughs> she, basically she said, her preamble was um, just to let everybody know here that you will likely um, always be tired you will likely some people always be navigating and maneuvering injury. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, you will not want to do this. And that will be more of your experience in the dance field than wanting to do it. You will always question why you're doing it. And okay, now let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was like, like I, 
it it so much resonated with me, mm. you know, like I didn't know why exactly, but you know, it, ha- it was such a strong memory for me. And I was like, yeah, I understand that. Like I, not cognitively, but I understood it somehow in my cells, <laughs> you know, um, that mindset somehow. Mm. Um, yeah. Also New York was, you know, hardcore, what what happened after your education um after my education at nyu um which you know basically i learned ballet and uh, all of the classical i would say classical modern techniques right so like cunningham horton um lamone graham um so i had this sort of like a disposition in my body that really had nothing to do with me, right? So I think after my uh, formal training in university, I spent many years uh, kind of undoing that training, uh, not actively necessarily, not like as pr- as a principle, but um, uh I mean, I was still training in ballet with Zvi Gottheiner. I don't know if you know him. He has taught quite often in, in Stockholm. Um, uh, but I was also doing a lot of improvisation, a lot of contact, um, uh, a lot of somatic-based work, Klein technique, and Alexander. Um, started getting more interested in, um, yeah, people incorporating uh improvisation into their training and and then I started you know of course freelancing and I started making my work also right away um it was much more there was much more some somehow capacity to do that back then um to be able to carry on with your two or three jobs to make a living um, and, and also, yeah, you know, get some opportunities to show things and have, um, really inexpensive studio rental. Mm. Uh, so those, those days obviously are long gone. And, you know, at this stage, I really don't know how younger generations are uh, managing in, in New York right now, but somehow they do, you know, everybody does because they don't know anything else, right? So, um, yeah, so I started, yeah, finding out, uh, I suppose, for lack of a better term, what my voice, my personal voice was within this dance uh, dance field. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, if you think about all the training you had and all the time you've spent with dance could you mention some things that you are grateful for that dance has taught you oh yeah dance has taught me everything i mean it's taught me how to be in the world um i mean it it actually makes me like start to tear up just thinking about it super grateful for a life in dance because it's um probably all the things that I actually can't articulate in language um, that I'm grateful for. Um, I don't know, for those folks who don't have an experience of dance or living in it, they probably can't understand, you know? Not to say that, oh, this is a specialized way of being in the world, but um, there is something about, like, it builds community very instantaneously and spontaneously. It builds a sense of empathy, like personal empathy, because you're often asked to be witness to others in a very vulnerable state, in a state of not knowing, in a state of um, active learning that doesn't necessarily have a discernible goal. And so you're, whether that uh, practice of empathy is is um, is uh, at the foreground of your intention, I think it gets built somehow. Like you start to understand people differently, and I think dance just 
offers generally an a antidote to the rest of <laughs> how we exist in the world, which is needing to justify um, all of the things that, the value systems, so like the monetary value or the use value of something. And what dance does is it, it, um, it allows us to um, be in the, um, the itness of the thing without having to necessarily justify it. So it is what it is in its um, fullest capacity. And to exist and experience something like that on a day-to-day -day basis is um, uh, very special. Um, uh, and and it, I, th I think an expansive intelligence somehow. Um, at a certain point when I started teaching a lot, uh, in especially in university settings, I would always say um, to, to people, to the students, that you know, what we're learning is not an aesthetic. It's not like a certain way to do this, that, or the other thing. It's, it, you know, what we're training for is a certain way of dealing with conditions that are not ideal outside of this contained um, uh, space, this safe space. And so the more you put yourself in situations that you feel uncomfortable in, that you tune yourself to the empathy and considering yourself that you could be other than who you are, it builds a resilience and a sense of adaptability so that perhaps when, you know, the apocalypse comes, you could actually like, you know, carry the jug of water and put somebody on your back and be able to like use all of your muscle power that you've trained, you know, to kind of dodge <laughs> like, you know, these impossible conditions. And I really feel that still that like dance has the ability to build a certain um, body and mind resilience and adaptability. So in any case, in answer to your question, obviously I could go on. <laughs> Um, about what I am grateful for and what I have learned uh, from uh, from dance, and it's also just super annoying at the same time, right? Like like living a life in dance is just absurd, <laughs> you know. It is like, oh my god, really? <laughs> this is what I chose for my life. Um, but you know, that said, it can be both and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> time for a tea break with yeah. with that <laughs> beautiful thank you for that yeah um so i want to talk a bit about the classes we yeah. had yeah this week and uh, when i came on monday it was a while ago since i was dancing oh, yeah. i like had a holiday oh yeah uh-huh it's really nice to get going and while we were dancing the first day you said said uh, dancing is a sensuous practice. Yeah. Which in one way sounds so obvious. Yeah. And in the same way, it hit me so hard in that mm. moment. And mm. it felt like such a reminder of, oh yeah, that is what I'm mm. doing. Yeah. That is what's important. And I think there are many examples in the class that mm. how you work with this. Mm. And one thing is, um, that we are tapping our mm -hmm. feet mm -hmm. or like stomping in the ground. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we are doing that to enhance the sensation. Yeah. And while this can sound obvious, it's not everyone that's mm. working with this no. uh, assumption or belief. No, no. So um, could you say something about in what way dancing is a sensuous practice mm, for mm, you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> that I, <clears throat> in my years of um, working with Deborah Hay, um, uh, I perhaps 
became a, a bit more aware of that capacity, <clears throat> um, that of that notion that dance is a sensual experience, um, and not just like a bod- bodily sensation, but the 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 sense of the imagination or the sense of um, energy or vibration or um, it can also be like the material self um, but the sensual experience kind of like ex- um, like uh, spanning across many different definitions of what that might mean and opening up the capacity of that experience um, so that we don't get stuck in um, maybe aesthetic values or um, uh, a kind of um, outcome of how we think something should go. Um, And that's not only like maybe how you think a class should go or how you think a performance should go, but um, how you think your own experience should go. So it's like, it's allowing yourself, it's giving yourself the gift in a way of um, being present to your experience as it's unfolding, as it's happening, so that you um, can maybe uh, tune a little bit or like sharpen the mind to that. Because it's often the mind that tells us that we need to do A, B, and C, or that you know, there are all these blocks that tend to um, uh, prevent us from having this uh, full capacity of experience. Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, that's one aspect to it. I think I quoted Steve Paxton yesterday in class. And um, there's a quote of his that says, I, 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 um, I chop wood to feel my spine. And that is maybe a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It's, it's that you might think that the goal is to chop wood to make a fire or that the goal is to go to class to get stronger or to look better or to gain more skills or a, you know, whatever those personal, um, goal goals are, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but at the core of why we're there is to experience ourselves in the moment of doing this thing and the potential for transformation. So, if we can get kind of like remind ourselves of that, like getting closer to that, connecting to, you know, um, yeah, a more essential aspect, um, which also includes pleasure. You know, if you think about a child, you know, who, you know, just, you know, like runs, you know, like has a desire to like, run or like spin really quickly or, you know, it's actually to feel that sense of like, um, disequilibrium, Mm -hmm. you know, like this sense of like, uh, I am here, but I'm actually, um, I have the capacity to be elsewhere or to feel something else Mm. expanded and, um, and, uh, more intensely. Yeah. So that's what I, you know, when I think of, that, you know, like the sex, the sensual experience is like feeling something more intensely, feeling my, uh, self more intensely in relationship to these conditions that I'm working on or in relationship to the people that I'm working with or, yeah. Mm. And I, you know, in relationship to Steve, Steve's quote, um, like I, I've been working a lot with objects because, uh, well, there's, you know, I won't go into the reason, but there is something also about how objects give feedback to the body. And um, 
there is like an immediacy of feeling your body more or the capacity of your body in relationship to these things that also perhaps don't move in a way another body moves. And so I think, yeah, I mean, there are other, maybe other um, byproducts of what happens uh, from working with objects, but that's really like when I, I was like, okay, I'm in the studio for three months by myself, you know, like I need more feedback somehow mm. because what I can do, uh, after a while gets super limited, you know? Um, so yeah, to be more interactive in a way to enhance that, that experience no. on a, on a very material level, but then yeah, like I say, there are all these other byproducts to uh, what that does. Mm. Running has been part of my practice mm. for a long time in mm. like exact the same yeah. uh, purpose. Mm. That after running a couple of laps, there is just there is so much information. Yeah. That that I don't have to look for. It's like yeah. bombarding me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And what do you know what the what like some of those sensations or what those what that information is like how do you how do you experience that it's probably like endor a lot of endorphins running through mm. yeah mm. for sure i think um physically i feel um like awake or mm. inflated mm. or mm. Mm, expanded somehow mm, mm. bigger than like the skin surface yeah yeah. Um, yeah and there is there is so much movement mm. there to mm. catch and yeah. dance with yeah I think yeah And do you feel that like similarly when you dance or are there different concerns or something? And now I'm turning the tables on the interview, but um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, yeah, how that's similar, uh, running, how running is similar or different to your experience of dancing. I think when I, um, that, that it's similar, that mm. When I share my practice, mm. I use the running mm. to, like, it's so easy to run. Yeah, yeah, We yeah. know how to run. Yeah, you everybody. can run and yeah. then afterwards you feel different. Yeah. And then you can talk about that experience of running and how dancing can be similar to that experience. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Mm. To get into what we're talking about now, to dance, to sense my body. Yeah. I think that's... That resonates a lot with me in relationship to this practice of non-stopping, what I call non-stopping. It was a very kind of like reductive or blunt term to get... I think I coined the phrase when I started to teach this practice that I was doing that had like this kind of expansive relationship to all these different tools and strategies that I had, had accumulated over the years. And um, non-stopping was like an immediate way of transmitting the, the notion of what it felt like. And everybody could like, oh, I, I, I viscerally know what non-stopping is and I cognitively know what non-stopping is. So basically my desire in going into new situations with teaching is just to kind of like say the word, give a couple of like directives or proposals, propositions, and then we just go. Mm. And then, like you're saying, then we can talk about the experience after we have experienced it. But if you're spending, you know, a good portion of the time talking about the concept of what we're doing, and it's tricky in practice-based teaching because it's not based on a, 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 f a formulated class maybe that 
you know, like, you know, that you're going to have warm ups or it's, you know, like it has a certain kind of, um, formulation that you can follow. And, and it's also not based on mimesis. So, you know, you need to establish some, uh, commonality and some way of working, how you're going to work together. So I think that was my strategy of like, okay, I need to come up with a simple term uh, so that we can just get going mm. and then we can work on the nuance and the outcome of, of what that, what that is. Um, yeah. So that really resonates with me in relationship to running. Mm. And that was so clear also in class now, these classes that we had to, to get going yeah. and then how, depending on where we are and what questions we have, yeah. you also build yeah. from yeah, exactly. that. Yeah. Because one day, mm, I think you said something like uh, not prioritizing form. Yeah. And uh, me... Or not to worry about not it. Not to worry yeah. about Yeah. And me wanting to fulfill that task immediately yeah. <laughs> started to like try to avoid form. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which resulted in me not feeling that I fulfilled the direction yeah. of my yeah. dancing. Yeah. And then I brought that up. Yeah. And then you mentioned form as a manifestation of desire. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And from that point, desire became a really important engine for me when yeah. we did the yeah. non-stopping yeah. practice. Yeah. And it became clear also how form for me fell into a category of idea that mm. felt like something very articulated mm. where desire was something else mm. and you mm. mentioned this like mm. desire is fire mm. Mm. um how do you work with desire within mm. the practice of non-stopping yeah i mean i think desire is um is the sub layer or maybe the hidden dramaturgy of of the non-stopping practice it is a constant confrontation with yourself um so you know we were doing non-stopping in spurts of say five or ten minutes but if you do it for an hour you will be in without stopping you will be in 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 um a series of confrontations, <laughs> you know, uh, with, with yourself, with your, um, self purpose, with, you know, your capacity to, um, you know, whatever I'm saying this in quotes, be creative, um, you know, um, all of the maybe questions or doubts that come, come up about, what you're formulating, um, and how it's manifesting. So I think desire is that essential, um, um, aspect of, of ourselves that we bypass. If we can refresh our desire, we can bypass all of those, um, sort of frontal lobe, um, uh, thoughts that get in our way so that, um, um, there's, yeah, maybe something a bit more, um, uh, connected to, um, I don't know, an essentialized reason why we're doing this, getting back to, um, a first source of why, we connected to moving. Um, uh, and I think that desire is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a practice. It's like a, it's like a constant work somehow to connect to what you want, mm. <laughs> you know, but, and also, but also not to think of what you what you want as a, um, as a goal, 
but it's more like an energy, mm. right? So like, that's why I say desire rather than what do you want to do? Right. You know, like, so desire is more, um, sort of, um, yeah, all encompassing somehow. Like, yeah, that's why I say desire is fire. It's like, you know, it's like lighting, lighting, lighting a match or like kicking up the dust or, um, asking your asking yourself in in like every moment that you want to stop like what is at stake for me mm. you know um sometimes i say in classes like you know like if i can think of non-stopping or like my practice of it um like what if this moment is it right so um like, what if this moment that we're dancing right now together is it? Like, it's not tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, some people resonate with, what if I, what if this was a performance? What if I had, like, you know, uh, 800 people watching me? Right? So it, it just, to, it just, like, dials, it tunes the dial a bit to heighten your relationship to what it is you're doing. Mm. Uh, so that, um, because sometimes the criticism can be from, from folks is that it, it can't, you know, it's like, Oh, I can do this or that, or I can do anything. But my point is that, you know, um, it's not anything because you're actually making micro choices all the time and micro decisions. It's just, how you're connecting to how your body is making those decisions rather than your, your cognitive mm. mind. So I think desire is getting, um, under the subterranean, uh, layer of your personal composition that is not about like the cognitive mind making those decisions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we didn't do really, like long stretches, mm -mm. but when we did a bit longer, mm. you have this like uh, exhaustion or yeah. that you have to overcome that you maybe want to yeah. take a yeah. stop. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I was, there was this, uh, what you mentioned, oh, now it's whatever or it's anything goes or maybe something we can call autopilot was, mm. was there sometimes. Mm. And then, I had to match that with something that produced a, a intention. Yeah. Um, but then I also felt like I had to match that with the instruction of having no agenda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that mm -hmm. I also felt hmm, was something yeah. uh, to balance. Because sometimes when um, hmm, I look for an intention, mm -hmm. that becomes too much of a task. Yeah. Which I felt was... Mm, not what the practice yeah, was looking for yeah, either. Yeah, it's more allowing yourself to pass through these things rather mm. than like um, going on a linear path. Um, because if I kind of like set an intention and then I hold on to that intention, um, then I'm sort of narrowing my focus, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just like, okay, um, in non-stopping, I'm trying to multiply and accumulate attentions rather than like narrow my attentions. And so that's, yeah, just like, um, being able to see the car crash coming before it happens, you know, like being able to like see pattern everywhere, for instance. So if I'm on my like path of intention, and say if my intention is to go to the corner and then all of a sudden somebody like bumps into me, am I still going to go to, you know, it's like, uh, I have the intention to go to the bus, but like, there's like a high speed, um, car coming toward me, you know, like, yeah. so that, it, that's kind of like a reductive way to explain it. But Sometimes our intentions are not, um, sometimes they're serving us creatively and sometimes they're limiting mm. us. And I think, um, it's not to say that I think it's, it's good to refresh like what your intention 
is, say, in a moment where you feel like you have none. But then that's, you know, that's already past, mm. <laughs> you know, by the time that you probably think about it. Mm. Because there are other things that you need to be sort of attending to. Um, yeah. And it can be quite, yeah, overwhelming. And like a like you're moving through a really thick forest in the dark. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe accepting the forest rather than trying to cut down the trees. Um, and the forest is actually not out there. It's in here. It's like in the body, like this capacity for overgrowth mm. and excess and you know, like brambles and like, you know, stuff that you have to get through. Mm. Um, uh, so sometimes, yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, after this piece inging, which is based on nonstop speaking, I went back into, um, the practice of nonstop moving and I created a piece called To Being, which is based on nonstop moving. And that uh, performance, you know, in different, um, different performances lasted maybe up to, you know, 75 minutes or 90 minutes. And what happens is that if you allow yourself to go through all of, you know, the, the, that this excess and um, and um, yeah, to experience that, actually, it, something really opens a kind of clearing um, that doesn't have to do with oh, I I knew I was going to get here. So what's exciting potentially is that the audience is sort of you know experiencing that unfolding and what can happen after an hour. Um, yeah, something, yeah, some other compos, you know, so, sort of like organizational principle starts to unfold. Um, yeah, I think of it like a clearing. It feels like very um, crystalline or... Uh, but it's not something that I, you know, would ever get to if I had um, maybe, you know, quote unquote, quote unquote, choreographed it or yeah. composed it. Yeah, I think I when you say that, I think that I have an experience of that mm. clarity that you mm. uh, speak about. And I think it can be because that sensation I feel like it's addictive mm, like yeah that's a place where I want to go yeah and that can be tricky when you do this yeah a practice that have gotten you there yeah, yeah and yeah. to talking about not having an agenda yeah to yeah. not like search for yeah. that because yeah. that is also that feeling yeah. yeah yeah and searching for that feeling is yeah. the thing that's not gonna make it happen yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's also trusting that, like, maybe on a day-to-day -day level, you're not going to get there, or th that if you if you allow yourself or trust that you, yeah, maybe will experience something else, and maybe that something else is really challenging or difficult or even just hard, yeah. you know, um, then it's like... Um, yeah, you're putting yourself under different conditions and saying, like, the value system is more horizontal. Mm. So this experience is not better or worse than the really hard day in which I learned this, mm. you know? So if I can, yeah, kind of open up my learning experience to not, yeah, like the value is not, you know, to get to those five pirouettes but it's like oh what else did I learn about balance or um access or <laughs> the center line or you know like yeah just to uh, kind of flip yeah. the narrative somehow um yeah mm.
Yeah, because learning is happening everywhere. So if we can, yeah, yeah, maybe dimensionalize it more mm. so it's not so linear. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, in relation to non-stopping, mm. as an observer or an mm. audience, mm. Mm. Um, what do you enjoy about mm. the practice non-stopping? Yeah, I enjoy watching um, what I perceive of as seeing the th- the the body think in real time. Like I really see, I can really see people um, uh, not not hold like there's a behavior, an essentialized behavior that starts to emerge that's very singular to that person's experience and history. It's almost like I can see a personal archive emerging. And so if somebody really allows themselves to not censor their um, relationship to themselves within all of these conditions that they're dealing with, there's a form that gets produced that's super exciting to me and it's not something that can be reproduced right i mean you can reproduce the conditions but you can't reproduce the form necessarily so as a as a choreographic challenge that's oftentimes um what i'm busy with you know in making work is like how to find what is the frame that I can build to hold this experience in which um, this um, behavior or form can emerge. Um, uh, And also there's an... um, there's an immediacy to it that resonates with me, um, like a, per, a like a purposefulness. But I uh, like a personal purpo- purposefulness. That's not um, yeah necessarily based on aesthetic, although. I do feel that it produces an uh, an aesthetic, yeah, but that's not necessarily my goal. Hmm. Um, yeah, seeing people um, uh, problem solve <laughs> with, with uh, you know, like in the in the in the instant uh, is exciting to hmm. to me. Um, yeah yeah so you mentioned something about that part of your work is also to um, uh, value this kind of work in Mm. performance Mm, setting mm, yeah Um, do you feel that it's not always valued in a performative setting Uh, you mean from myself or from other folks Mm. I just uh, in you saying that mm. you want to work for it to be valued mm. Mm. I sensed a, mm. oh, yeah. a, a feeling of it not being and I don't know if it's by you or if it's yeah. for others yeah I mean I think that we're all tied to a sort of historicized relationship to what is worthy of being seen Mm -hmm. you know we're all kind of like in that matrix of what has quote-unquote worked before and there are paradigms or examples of of i'm using a lot of quotes but of quote-unquote excellence and um and so that I have that just as much as anybody else does. But I think in terms of like, if we're talking about the art market, you know, um, I think there are uh, 
qualifications, not qualifications, um, um, perhaps judgments on what is worthy of being performed and seen by an audience or what is ready to be seen by an audience. And um, uh, so, yeah, I've been working a lot. And this is also, you know, like, also, again, my work with Deborah Hay has sort of opened up this possibility. You know, I've been working with her on and off since 2005, since, you know, it's been a long time, but... Um, uh, the notion of performance as a practice, right? So that that you, do, you it's, it's not the notion that you are rehearsing something to represent later, but that you are practicing something to perform the practice of, right? Mm -hmm. So that y you are while in performance you are still practicing and I feel like that's a value system that is very dancerly you know that it's a very dancerly sensibility that um, you're inviting the audience also to be in that experience of things unfolding and learning happening in performance and so, <clears throat> aside from Deborah, but to get back to your question in relationship to the work that I do on stage, um, I have accepted a while ago that sometimes the work that I do will fail. You know, like, like it will not, there are so many conditions that can produce, um, um, disaster th theatrically, like in terms of dramaturgy, in terms of our relationship to how we think things should go as audience members. And I'm willing to go there. Like that's my, pro I guess that's my project. So, you know, there have been also, you know, um, I wouldn't say sacrifices, but once I realized that that's the kind of work I was interested in doing and that I couldn't really go back and start, you know, making other kinds of work. Um, yeah, there are certain um, invitations that embrace that and certain invitations that don't and would never. And I don't necessarily expect, yeah, that to be valued by everybody. Because I think that there is a capitalist notion in the art market that the authorship, the singular author knows exactly what they want and they bestow upon their performers, their dancers, all of their knowledge of how it's gonna go and that's just a fiction. It, it you know, the life doesn't work like that. So I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I, there was a certain point where I got really just uninterested for myself, not in, not in, I love to go see performance that is really like fixed and determined. And I know exactly like, this is where the crescendo is going to happen. And, you know, this is where everything is going to come together, you know? But for myself, I became very uninterested creatively in, you know, in that representation. So I, w I became more interested in, co okay, my work as a choreographer is to find the frame that can hold all of this mess. And the frame is going to hold it and that's actually what's going to um, create the composition is, you know, is the, is the how mm. 
not the what. Um, but even, you know, like I just saw, I um, had a commission with a company in London that I did last year, had a premiere in London, and then um, it just uh, by chance actually went to New York and went to BAM, uh, to the to the opera house at BAM. And um, it wasn't supposed to be my work. It was supposed to be Trisha Brown's set and reset with another work. But because of COVID-related reasons, they couldn't do this other work, and so they had to bring mine. <laughs> and um, it, there's a whole backstory on that, and also my relationship to being in that theater as a young dancer, year after year seeing, you know, like amazing performances. So it was quite emotional for me to have my work at the Opera House at BAM uh, in my hometown. And, uh, but I just saw this little blurb of, um, recently, uh, of a, um, review. There was like, you know, profiling different performances post COVID and mine was in there. Um, and it was, it was like this qualification that the work was improvised and not choreographed. Mm. And even that like needing to say that mm. puts a value system on it. And I just don't see that um, uh, that value system as relevant uh, anymore. Mm. It's like it's like the conversation of like what is dance? I mean, we've been having that since the early 60s. You know, like we're still having that discussion. You know, like, um, you know, if you improvise, if something is improvised, then it's not choreographed, right? It, it's it's silly. It feels mm -hmm. silly to me. Yeah. Although I understand why people want to keep doing that, mm -hmm. right? They want to know, you know, if inging is scripted or if it's improvised. Because if it if it's improvised, then it's more virtuosic, mm. right? But it could also be the other way that if it's improvised, then she could just say anything. She's just, ta she's just talking. So there is a lack of value of, I think, ultimately, um, practice, like what it means to be in the moment of learning as you're doing it. I don't think that is valued in a capitalist getting back to a capitalist structure. Mm. Everything is, what is the use value of this, right? Like, like, uh, yeah. Like, we can really appreciate Serena because, you know, like, there's no doubt that she is the greatest of all time, right? But Venus, like, <laughs> did all, like, the shit of, like, you know, you know, um, fielding all of the racism and, you know, like trying to fight for equal uh, pay for women and, you know, like, so nobody really talks about Venus, but like, in any case, I mean, maybe that's like a false equivalency there, but I don't know why I just thought of that, but I don't know, like, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, some, sometimes people want to go to the theater because they want to know that they can't do what somebody else is doing on stage. And that is the excellence. That is the thing that, oh, well, I can't do that. That means they must be good. Yeah. Yeah, so if somebody's just talking for an hour, oh, I can do that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, that was a good um, uh, catch from you picking that up. <laughs> um, but I, you know, yeah, I mean, I've already made my decisions about that. I mean, I know that, you know, the, the work requires a very particular um, invitation. And sometimes, you know, I lose invitations because of that. Yeah. And that's fine with me. Then I actually know, like, oh, 
this commission is coming from somebody who actually values the work and understands it and is willing to go through, um, yeah, like in the fourth week coming into the studio and it's still being a mess and being like, okay, yeah. you know, I, I trust, I trust this. Yeah. Cause if you're always working toward, um, what you think somebody wants, uh, you know, some people really deal with that really well. And I, I have so much admiration for people that can do that, but, uh, that's, that I can't, I'm unable to work, you know, creatively in those conditions. I can work in those conditions, but not creatively. So, yeah. Is there anything else you would like to ask, be asked or add to this conversation? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just appreciate the invitation from you to, to do this and, um, and also to connect with you because I saw you perform Stina Nyberg's work at El Verket. I don't know when that was, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw you in class and I was like, oh my gosh, it's you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was very excited um, to, yeah, just to have those few days of practice with you and um, and then this invitation. But I don't know. Um, I probably could talk a while about things, but uh, I don't, at the moment, I don't have anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) This feels good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. And uh, thank you, whoever's listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. (laughs) Goodbye. Oh, oh.